HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. I am very pleased to have in the studio today Michael Tunick, uh, author of The Science of Cheese, and also joining us is one of my favorite mentors in cheese, cheesemaker Peter Kendall. Welcome to both of you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. Michael, I want to let you know and to let our listeners know, I was initially scared of your book. Uh, because of the title, when it first arrived, the name, The Science of Cheese, plus the pictures of molecules inside the book, that was a little scary, and the scientific-sounding words. So that's why I immediately panicked and invited the far more scientific Peter Kendall to join us. However, then I read the book, and I'm really impressed uh, how The Science of Cheese integrates science recipes, technical judge information, with an amazing array of stories, literary quotes, other interesting tidbits sprinkled throughout, and it teaches you things you never thought you could learn. Yeah. It's really, That's the idea. It's really well done. I, I oh, must congratulate you. you. Um, so let me ask you a few writerly questions mm-hmm. when we get started. Uh, then we'll dive into content. What's your background in terms of uh, science and degrees and jobs? What do you do? Well, I'm a, a research chemist, and I wor- went to uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia. I chose that one because they have a work-study program. You work six months, go to school for six months, and they assigned me a job at the United States Department of Agriculture outside of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Eastern Regional Research Center. And there I was working on uh, cocoa butter substitutes, so that meant I got to analyze a lot of chocolate. Ah. When I graduated, 
Uh, I was hired full-time in another unit, and in that one I was working on leather tannery waste, which okay. isn't uh, quite so delicious. Mm-hmm. But while I was doing that, I was attending uh, Temple University on a part-time basis, going for a Ph.D. in physical analytical chemistry. Mm-hmm. While I was there, an opening popped up in what is now the Dairy and Functional Foods Research Unit. They needed a physical analytical chemist, mm-hmm. so I was transferred over into there. Hmm. So I've been in that unit since 1984, and mm-hmm. most of the work that I've done uh, has to do with cheese. Okay. Now, were, when you first started, did you want to study food? Yeah, well, once I first started, which was back in 73, I thought mm-hmm. that uh, food was a really fascinating uh, topic because everybody eats. Right. So, therefore, you know, figuring out uh, how food works uh, seemed to be pretty interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of off of that during the time I was working with the hides and leather group. But then mm-hmm. I got back into it when I got in the dairy group. And, uh-huh. uh, and you've been happily yeah. placed ever since. That's right. Cool. That's right. Cool. Um, now, what did you set out to write with this book? What was the initial idea? And did you pitch the idea or did someone find you? I did you? not pitch this idea. Okay. See, I'm, a, I'm active in the American Chemical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a division of agricultural and food chemistry that I was the chair of and I'm the secretary of now. Mm-hmm. And there's also a speaker service. So I was able to go around to all these different local sections around the country and give a talk called Molecules to Mozzarella, the Chemistry of Cheese. Ah. And... So okay, anyway, so cheese was was already something yeah. you liked speaking about. Yeah. So in 2011, they started, ACS started a webinar series, and mm-hmm. they did one series on food chemistry, and so they asked me to give a webinar on cheese. Our ACS, American Cheese Society. No, the American Chemical Society, oh. the other ACS. Or the, okay. the American Cancer Society yeah. is the other yeah. ACS. It's not that one either, no. It's okay. The, the American Chemical Society has 161,000 members. Ah, so, much bigger than yeah, our Yeah, it's a little group. bigger than the cheese one. Right. But anyway, um, Oxford University Press handles the book publishing for that ACS. Okay. And they listened to the webinar, and they contacted me and asked if I'd be willing to write a book about the chemistry of cheese. Uh-huh. So I put a little proposal together and started figuring out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And uh-huh. uh, they approved the proposal, and I started <laughs> writing. So it uh, took up a couple of years. Uh-huh. And remember, I'm doing this... You know, it's part of my official duties. Oh, it so, is. Yeah. It is. Okay. So so you don't have to only do it on weekends or at no, night? Okay. No. Okay. We're also doing it, uh, you know, partly during the day, some of the work, mm-hmm. uh, which is also why I'm not getting royalties from the book, because I'm a you know, oh. government employee. Oh, it's the part government of the official duties, them. So the okay. royalties go to that uh, Division of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Mm-hmm. With a book like this, are the royalties going to amount to that much? Well, the last time I checked, they said that they sold over 2,000 copies, so mm-hmm. you figure, well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's uh, something, and that's, right. You know, right. so that goes to help support uh, the programs in that right. division. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so when you did the planning for the book, did you know you were going to include all the literary quotes, for example? No. <laughs> no, uh, the webinar was purely scientific because I was speaking to chemists. Right. And once I got started, I figured to mix in, mm-hmm. you know, these other things, you know, have some epigram at the start of each chapter and uh, so forth, because I figured that general public would be interested in, you know, how cheese relates to what other people have said about it and done about it and so forth. So, that meant Did that you I, have to sell that idea? No. 
it's a it's a no. phenomenal idea, and you have so many quotes that yeah. not only do you have them at every chapter head, you have them in some of the boxes yeah. too. Yeah. It seemed like you had an excess of quotes. Yeah, uh, and they're by people like T.S. Eliot, George Will, W.H. Auden, Flaubert, Cervantes. You are very well rounded in your quoting. Yeah. Well, thank How you. did you find them? Was it an internet search? Did you have an well, assistant? Partly. Well, I have you know, some of the books at home. So uh-huh. uh, there was part, I mean, one chapter where they were talking about, uh, you know, somebody was afraid to eat cheese because there were uh, bugs on it, uh-huh. which is crawling around it. And, uh, and so somebody replies to him, well, don't worry about it because the bugs will eat the cheese and then you swallow the bugs and so you'll be having the cheese anyway. So that was from the uh, Reed's novel, The Cloister and the Hearth, which I have at home. So okay. it came from that. The Don uh-huh. Quixote, I have that at home. Uh-huh. So but you ha- ha- some I mean, of these others. There are hundreds from, of quotes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Came They're- from that or, the, you know, or quotations, books, you know, right, things like that. Right. For the non-scientist reading the book, they were so entertaining, and they yeah. kept you uh, entertained, laughing, yeah. like, where did he find this one? Did yeah, you- and of course, you might have a cousin, Allison, who's very fond of Charlie Chaplin, because she's uh-huh. in the movie theater business, so mm-hmm. I make sure to put in something about uh, Chaplin's uh, movie, Soldier shoulder arms where he tossed some Limburger into the enemy uh, uh-huh. trench to, to uh, flush them out. Uh-huh. So... Yeah, so I had uh, you know, some of the quotes with uh, other things in mind. Okay, very creative, very creative touch. Um, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Uh, so how long does it take to write a book like this, and what were your favorite parts to write? Well, I started writing it in uh, you know June of 2011, as soon as they told me to start writing a proposal. Uh-huh. And I was basically done by uh, September of uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, then I sent it out to a friend of mine in uh, Ireland. Uh, it's Paul McSweeney who wrote a blurb on the back cover. He checked it over, make sure that uh, you know any of the mistakes I made got corrected and uh-huh. so forth. So that took until about December, and then it was sent to Oxford. And it took them almost twelve months between the time they got it until the time they got it into the stores. Right, right. It's, so it always takes a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and um, are they pleased with it? Yeah, they're mm-hmm. pleased with it. They asked me to write another one on milk. Oh, so I don't know when that's going to happen. But <laughs> um, the organizational aspect of it, you you for people who haven't read the book yet, you separate it mostly into types of cheese. Yeah. But then, what I think is phenomenal is that you include various pertinent topics yeah. within the cheese type chapters. Yeah. And you have your boxes which you warn people they don't have to read. Yeah. But I read them. Yeah. But I liked that was very smart of you to say you don't have to read the hard parts. Yeah, that's right. And I'm not <laughs> insulted if you don't, but uh, but I kept it in there in case you wanted to take a look at it. Right. But the way right. it was organized was that I would have a certain class of cheese and then I would have a class of chemical compounds that are often found in that cheese. So that way uh by going through the book then we were able to hit all the classes of compounds that you find along with all the classes of cheese that there are. Right. And it broke it up a little. Yeah. So you didn't have to read about too many compounds yeah. in a row and you were yeah. in the mind frame of that particular type of yeah. cheese. That's did right. you did you notice that? Yeah, Peter? I did. I, it was it was very well segmented. I thought yeah. I thought there was a, a an approachable amount of of scientific 
meat in there. Yeah. And from the science side, it was it was fun to read too because you could dig a little deeper. Yeah, yeah. I have to be careful not to make the chapters too long, and mm-hmm. uh, you know things like that to make it kind of easy on the reader, and mm-hmm. you know transition to the next chapter at the end right. of one and right. that kind of thing. So I've never written a book before. I've edited books, but I've never written one. Right. So right. this was all new to me. And Had you edited more chemistry books? Yes. Okay. They've all been having to do with uh, you know food chemistry. So right. I've done like about six of those. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is the first time I've ever written one. Right, right. And I'm sure it's a much different task. Yeah, it's a different task completely. And this one has quotes and fun stories in yeah. it too. Which the other, yeah, the other technical ones Probably don't. didn't. Now, when you wrote it, who is the publisher expecting uh, to be the first line of buyers for this book? Uh, probably, you know, food scientists and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who uh, work with cheese and who uh, know more about the technical aspect like Peter and mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. kind of person first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we've also been getting just, uh, you know, regular people who are interested in mm-hmm. cheese who mm-hmm. have been uh, contacting me and uh, just saying that they read it and, uh, mm-hmm. and liked it. Yeah, yeah. I think so. it can uh, be uh, pleasant and, and interesting for both audiences. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I ran across it for the first time at our American Cheese Society meeting in the bookstore that they compile. And um, it scared me, but yeah. I took a picture of it for, you know, to pursue yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's a kind of a little photogenic cover, kind of a black cover with chalk and a piece of cheese on there. So. Yeah, yeah yellow piece of cheese so uh when they first uh showed me a mock-up of the cover i thought well that looks really interesting i'll kind of stick out from uh-huh. all the others and yeah so, so that uh, people have commented that it has and yeah so that's and it mo- has the molecule yeah and it has some, <laughs> the yeah, scary molecule and yeah, and, yeah yeah but but it's uh cool enough so that you yeah. don't get you don't get too scared yeah anyway so um Let's see. What are some of our issues to discuss? Um, one thing I wanted that I really liked was um, in every cheese type, you have a, a very short like paragraph describing the recipe, kind of. Yeah. How it's made, the, the temperature, the mm-hmm. type of milk. Um, but you also said, which was one of the things that you wrote, that... Uh, after so many simply written recipes, you say cheese or milk, it'll do as it damn well pleases. Yeah, that's right. That's what happened. <laughs> that's a saying about microorganisms in an experiment. Oh, okay. Given you know rigid uh, control of temperature, humidity, pressure, and other factors, the organism will do as it damn well pleases. Uh huh. So that's one thing about uh, cheese making is that you can keep everything as uh, rigidly controlled as possible, and sometimes it doesn't come out the way you expect it to. Right. A lot of times that's because there might be something floating in the air that uh, goes mm-hmm. into the uh, cheese vat. Mm-hmm. And other times, uh, as I, I mentioned in the book, the cheese may get a virus known as a phage or mm-hmm. phage, depending mm-hmm. on how you want to pronounce it. And so the bacteria get sick, and suddenly you don't have uh, cheese being made. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so it's think, not even doing its job. Yeah, it's not doing its mm-hmm. job. So mm-hmm. that's why uh, companies usually have more than one type of starter culture on hand, ready to go in case one of them gets sick. Then mm-hmm. uh, at least they can go with the now, other. Now, if a phage gets sick, is it thrown out? Is it does yeah. it ever recover? Yeah. Well, they'll just start up a new culture. They can order it from the from factory they are uh, places that make these starter cultures mm-hmm. of different kinds of cheese and they would ship it uh at minus 80 degrees celsius and mm-hmm. which is 
way below minus 40 Fahrenheit, and then it would be thawed out, and they would be mm -hmm. grown up in milk in the plant. Mm -hmm. And from there, they could uh, and make the cheese. But mm -hmm. in the meat, as I said, that uh, they would usually have another culture standing by. Right, right. It's wise know, to do that, to yeah, have more than one case. culture yeah. available. Yeah. Don't some people just uh, rotate cultures yeah. back and forth? I, I yeah, remember very commonly. Yeah, Montgomery Cheddar. Montgomery or, did one yeah. for every day of the week. Yeah. Right. You, you usually alternate different different strains of the same yeah. same style. And it, why it might do they be do worth that? discussing the, the science of the phage just yeah. to, to give people an idea of what... It's sort of like a, a virus yeah, that attacks right. bacteria specifically. Yeah, that's right. Bacteria. Viruses can at attack any living cells, and that includes bacteria, <clears throat> which mm -hmm. are uh, a lot bigger than a virus. So... In a bacteria can catch a virus and and uh, it'll have a, a cold. Yeah, yeah, and well, nothing happens when you it, it, the acidification doesn't happen. Uh, it yeah, just, okay, it so just it doesn't stops. Work. Yeah. The virus goes to, the, the bacteria goes to bed and won't, won't yeah, do its work. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then you have to change. But it and, won't. That's not poisoning anything. No, it's just no, they not just, making just have to cheese. Clean up, clean no, up they well would just dump out the vat and uh -huh. clean it out and start over with a new strain. Mm -hmm. Do you have to have a more major clean? clean up after something like that happens it's i mean it, it's enough to to clean the way you normally do okay. and then okay. and then shift your your starter culture a lot of times they'll have something like uh mm100 there's two different strains of a single strain of bacteria that mm -hmm. that if you alternate over the course of time phage doesn't have a, a chance to take a, get a foothold uh, in your room oh is it sort of like a drug resistant antibiotics like the the phage gets too smart. Similar, <laughs> similar, yeah, yeah. And he's, I, he's making. Yeah. He's rolling And there his are eyes. other there are other starter cultures that are blends of uh -huh. a bunch of different acidophiles. And they'll be stronger fighting a phage. Yeah, yeah. yeah you just have to remember that cheese plants are very clean places because if you have right. the starter culture bacteria growing, you can also have pathogenic bacteria growing if they get in there. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that. Uh, everything is scrupulously clean mm -hmm. at all times. So that's why they use the stainless steel and they mm -hmm. clean everything out as best they can all the time. Mm -hmm. okay. So that you don't get the outbreaks of a foodborne illness. Right, right. I want to talk about that later, but first I want yeah. to talk about something that reminds me of. Could you tell the story in the book about the Liederkranz? Yeah. Now, that is a, a type of cheese that's somewhat similar to uh, Limburger. It was developed... Uh, in upstate New York, the word Liederkranz means wreath of song. It was named after a singing society in New York. And that one, uh, they moved a factory to a uh, place Ohio. in Ohio. Yeah, New Ulm, Ohio. And they brought the starter culture, and they started, tried to start making the cheese, but it didn't come out right. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't tasty enough, no, right? No. Uh, it uh, turns out that uh, you also had bacteria living on the wooden walls and the racks mm -hmm. of the uh, old cheese plant. So they scraped the uh, bacteria and uh, mold and everything off of the old plants and uh, brought it into the new plants and let it and let that go in the air and that worked and that fixed their cheese yes then that there's no way that happens nowadays but i want you to apply that to the ruckus that was going on last summer when the fda yeah. said no wood shells yeah they were uh interpreting the rule to mean that you can only have something like a non-porous stainless steel shelf right. uh, to work on mm -hmm. and well, the cheese industry was in an uproar because uh, you're not going to get, you know, pathogenic bacteria by aging cheese on a shelf that uh, 
you know, you're keeping uh, clean all the time. Mm-hmm. So after a few days, they realized they made a mistake and changed their minds and said, okay, uh, you can use those uh, wooden shelves. Uh-huh. That was a big um, yeah. uh, brouhaha for ACS, yeah. American Cheese Society. Yeah. It happened right before our meeting, and the FDA came to our meeting. Now, is your are you an arm of the FDA? No. FDA How does... is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. That's okay. an agency there. Uh, I work for the Agriculture Research Service, which is an agency of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So it's a different department, okay. and we do different things. Mm-hmm. So uh, FDA is regulatory, okay. and Agriculture Research Service is research. It's okay. not regulatory. Okay. So we don't do you uh, overlap at meetings? Yeah, we do have uh, you know FDA and uh, ARS mm-hmm. people you know attending in the same meetings and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we have it, but we just have different jobs. Okay. Okay, just wondering. Well, I think it's time for our break. Uh, this is Diane Stemple with Michael Tunick and Peter Kendell on Cutting the Curd, and we'll be back in a little bit. The dairy farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Hi, we're back on Cutting the Curd. Uh, talking to Michael Tunick about his book, The Science of Cheese. Um, one of the things that I found very interesting in the book that I did not realize was news to me is that you say lots of research has been done on cheese. Yes, a whole lot yeah. of research has been done on cheese and on milk and on other dairy products too. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Why so much on cheese? Well, for one thing, it's because a lot of people like it. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot of flavor chemistry on cheese. There's also been a lot of texture chemistry done mm-hmm. on cheese. Uh, there's a branch of science known as rheology, which is the study of flow and deformation of matter. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of rheological work in which uh, do things like squeezing a piece of cheese and seeing how much hardness it has and how much it springs back and how cohesive mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And those are things that uh, cheesemakers have to keep in mind if they want to... Um, you know, have uh, reproducible uh, cheese because, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't just flavor, it's also texture. So you have a lot of work on uh, both areas in cheese. And, of course, with the more cheese varieties you have the, and the more species of animal that are used to make the cheese, then you're going to have a whole lot of different things to look at. More and more permutations and combinations. Yeah. 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 Um, I, uh, I was a aesthetic judge at the American Cheese Society yeah. meeting in Louisville years ago. And my technical judge was much more um, interested in the texture yeah. and the feel 
of cheese. Yeah. And so when I read about your your two rheology and mm-hmm. tribology, yeah, tribology, tribology, which is, which is the taste and so forth. It, so yeah, uh, that how it feels like in the mouth. Those are the sciences yeah. of of chewing and swallowing yeah. and stuff stuff like that. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the, your description of chewing in the book is kind of yucky. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it's, it's like you're putting boulders in your mouth and tossing them about and smushing them and yeah, tearing right. them and yeah, it's got to clear <laughs> and so forth. But uh, you know that's how it. it it has to feel a certain way, right. and of course, by doing that, you also release the flavor. Right, so right. So that goes in your nose, and yeah. uh, there are instruments for measuring that. And I uh-huh. have a picture of a friend of mine, uh, Devin Peterson, at University of Minnesota, with a thing up his nose uh, as he's uh, smelling the cheese and ah. trying to figure out what the compounds compounds smell like as uh-huh. they're coming out and right. this instrument. Right. And, are there any people who just are rheologists and only do that kind of research? Well, they're physical chemists like me. So, okay. I mean, I do rheology, but I also do thermal analysis mm-hmm. and um, electron microscopy to see mm-hmm. how it looks. Uh, so, uh, you know, we do uh, other things, too. It isn't, mm-hmm. I don't okay. just do rheology. So it's just like a, a, a small branch. Yeah, it's just a part of mm-hmm. uh, the things that we do, yeah. Okay, amazing. What did you think about the research aspects? It, it always astounds me as to how much each little bit of, of cheese, each little, uh, I don't know, uh, micro unit of cheese has been picked apart. And, yeah. and just looking in the, the, the credits at the back of the book, I love going into the into the just database of all of the papers that that are yeah. cited in there. Yeah, I was shocked. I was yeah. shocked. And you say cheddar has been researched more the than most, yeah. the most because and it's basically that, most popular. Oh, it's popular, yeah. and because it's big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. Actually, physically big. Yeah, well, partly because of that, and it's you know it's so commonly available. I mean, there are mm-hmm. some cheeses that uh, are not so commonly available, so obviously you're not going to get much research on it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, with cheddar, uh, you got a lot of research. Uh, mozzarella also, because it's more popular than cheddar in the United mm-hmm. States at this point. Okay. And then you have uh, you know, all the other varieties which uh, people are working on. So it adds Now, how up. do you measure popularity? Pounds sold? Yeah. Uh, the United States Department of Agriculture has an agricultural marketing service. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that they do, there's, they measure uh, the amount of, uh, cheese that's sold according to what's reported to them by cheese plants. Mm-hmm. So we now know that uh, mozzarella is about 34% of all the cheese that's uh, you know manufactured in the United States. And and it's ta- it's past cheddar? Yeah, cheddar's about 31 okay. at this point. That's impressive because you don't eat as much mozzarella uh, at a time, I you think. You eat pizza. Yes, but well, we do yeah. eat pizza. Yeah, yeah that's true. Through pizza. Right, yes. right. Uh, children so it's eat more... string cheese. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, yeah. So between those two, uh, it's really shot up from okay. uh, where it used to be, which is uh, not as popular before. Oh, okay. You know. Peter, you had a que- question about mozzarella. Oh, it's, it's more of a technical... A technical question because I I do a lot of cheese classes and I teach mozzarella and it took me literally, I've made cheese for 20 years and I flailed at mozzarella for the first 16 of them. Wow. I think, well, a lot of it was was that I was working at goat dairies and and the goat milk just doesn't work as well as the cow. And once I got to cow's milk, I I started making mozzarella and, and it was still very rubbery and it drove me crazy. Um, then I realized they're using a lot more citric acid and mm-hmm. and 
and vinegar instead of letting bacteria, approaching it as a cheesemaker was always the, my downfall is I, I let the bacteria use up all the lactose and, and, and turn it into something very rubbery and acidic, yeah. and it didn't taste great. You mean you had to approach it more like a cook or a chef? Yeah, it was a little more of a technology of cheese where you add citric acid instead of letting the bacteria eat the sugar. Okay. And a lot of that creates the final sweetness yeah. in it as opposed to a, a very acidic, rubbery mm-hmm. thing. But there's a point there's a point that you reach um, in the, the stretchability. You see it in cheddar as well. It's about five between 5.4 and 5.2 pH yeah. where it relaxes. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder what that what that relaxation and that stretch is. Is, is it the calcium starting yeah. to yeah. go aqueous in it? That's it, right. Okay. Yeah, there's different pH levels where different things happen. At pH uh, you know, 6, you have one thing going, then you get like 5.2 to 5.4, then the calcium allows it to stretch. If you go down much lower into the 4s, then uh, goes back again. So you got to go from you know solid to rubbery to solid again mm. and so forth. So there's a lot having to do with the pH in there. Uh, one problem that you might have had with the goat mozzarella is because there's a particular kind of casein called alpha S1, which uh, is big in cow milk, and it provides the uh, structure for the uh, uh, protein matrix in there, but uh, goat's milk has little of it. So if you're making uh, trying to make... Uh, goat's milk mozzarella or any other product from goat's milk, uh, you're not going to have such a strong cheese, and so that may be why the mozzarella wasn't going to work out mm, very well. Right, right. Hmm. That reminds me of some other very cool pages in your book where you list potential problems in cheese yeah. and ways to fix it, Yeah. which uh, I've been involved in conversations between cheesemakers and have just been sort of spacing out on the side and your book really shows what they're talking about yeah it it's phenomenal that it can be on a page in a book though i think you pointed out that it's not always so easy to fix the bacteria will do what it it damn well pleases (laughs) i I, I think it what it boils down to is is you can you can sort of hedge your bets and and as a winemaker pointed out to me i have it easy because i have five or six vintages per week and he gets one a year. And so when uh, you're making yeah. something okay. every day, you have to be a really good observer and a really good note taker to, to yeah. evolve the cheese into something that, that behaves the way you want it to. Right. Yeah. And then there's some intangibles that you're not Always. really aware mm-hmm. of, like the Always. weather or the mood of the cow yeah. or who that knows. The stage of lactation yeah. and right. what they're eating, that, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing goes into it also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, cheese and wine and beer are three you know, fermented foods that you're dealing with microorganisms, so uh, you can have a lot of variation in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that the book talked about that there's not as much science yet that's gone into pairing research. Yeah. And um, I guess one of my side notes was to ask you, are we all nuts about this? Like, are no. we being silly trying no. to figure out pairings? No, I mean... You figure that if the same class of compound is found in cheese and some other food, then those two foods might go together. Mm -hmm. And so that isn't really crazy. Now, there may not be much to it or there may be something else having to do with it. But, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, trying to do this. Right. You know, it's it's like a hobby. Right. 
you're trying to figure, well, this goes with that, but it doesn't seem to, you know, this cheese doesn't go with chocolate, but it uh, does go with figs and walnuts. Right, you know, That right, kind of thing. Right. And what's the harm in trying? Yeah. <laughs> right. You're only eating cheese. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and right. And drinking wine or um, beer. <laughs> I was wondering, though, if sometimes, uh, is it because everyone's palates are different? And is, yeah. isn't there a whole science yeah. of sensory, you know, a that's sensory right. science of palate and taste? Yeah, there's like 10% of the population are super tasters and they right. can taste a lot of things. And but maybe... that's not good to be a super taster, right? Well, if you're really into things like wine vintages and fine cheeses, it's a really good thing. Oh, I thought it was like too much taste. Well, uh, that depends. I'm not a super taster by any means, uh-huh. so I wouldn't know for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, then you have like another 10% who can't taste much of anything. And mm-hmm. uh, then you have everybody else in between. Right, right. But people, you don't know, it's very difficult to, I mean, this is more in the psychology department. If I taste something and you taste something, how do we communicate that it tastes the same? It might not taste the same to the same person, uh, to different people. Right, right, right. That's why, for one thing, that uh, instrument that uh, you inhale to see what it it smells like, you Mm -hmm. have a couple people doing it, and they'll come up with two different answers on a lot of different things. Right. It's just uh, what a person's impression is. Mm Mm-hmm. And not being, uh, you know, not being able to scale it the same. Yeah. yeah, that's one thing you do have to do, like with the taste panels and all, which I've involved in at work, is that we have a scale and you go from, it actually goes from one to seven usually mm-hmm. to see how intense something is. And somebody can, uh, can be sensitive to salt and rate something a five and another person is not so sensitive rated a two. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, could you both weigh in on, I want to talk a little bit about safety and pathogens. Uh, there's also been a, another um, discussion with the FDA about non-toxic listeria and what the levels should be in cheese and how impossible they set the levels. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I know about toxic listeria because right, we've worked right. on it. And the problem with listeria is that not very many people get listeriosis, but mm-hmm. about 20% of the people who do get it die. Right. So that's so a really important one. Yeah, E. coli is another one that's found in there, but not a whole lot of people die from that. Uh, I wouldn't want to have any kind of listeria inside mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. my product, whether they call it non-toxic or not, because just it's, in case it might mutate. It's usually considered an indicator species. If listeria yeah. is in something, then it's it's contaminated. So yeah. it's it, okay. it just indicates that there could be something in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But aren't the numbers that are currently allowed in this country very different from what is usually allowed in Europe? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I remember in France in 1999, I guess we were in the Auvergne, the, they were going crazy about the zero-tolerance policy yeah. of listeria, saying it's right. just incomprehensible right. from a cheesemaker standpoint. Mm-hmm. And for good or bad, right. if you find right. it. And, and we do a lot of environmental testing, or we did a lot of environmental testing for Listeria in, in, in the cheese house. And I mean, even the testing is very sort of questionable these mm-hmm. days. And it, it, it picks up both live or dead okay. Listeria. So you have to literally kill it and then get rid of it. And then you'd get a, you don't get a positive. Okay. okay. So it's, it's a difficult thing. Okay. But cleanliness is, is key. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you if you knew about Stitchelton because you have a, a interesting thing about the English cheeses and mm-hmm. how many of them are now pasteurized. 
Yeah, they're worried a bit about uh, f- you know foodborne bacteria mm-hmm. over there too. Obviously, so uh, you do get some you know, it's pasteurization, and there are you know the cheeses that get shipped to the United States a lot of times are pasteurized too. Right. And- so, uh, have you had or seen Stitchelton, which is a um, a newer Stilton? That no, that one I haven't seen yet. Oh, okay. How new is it? Because It's not that new. Uh, Joe okay. Schneider for Neil's Yard has been making it for a couple of years. Maybe okay. five by now. I yeah, think. it's sold uh, at, you know, fancier cheese shops alongside of Stilton. Okay. And it's called Stitchelton, and it's a bit creamier, I'd say. It is a lot more giving texture. Yeah. I, I always taste them side by side with people just to give them the sense of what what it was and what it used to be right 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 it is a it is a brand new thing yeah well uh, regular stilton's one of my favorites i'm gonna have to give that one a try okay you know you're gonna have to try stilton then i'm sure uh you're from philadelphia i'm sure de bruno's has yeah yeah they probably would (laughs) because they're neil's yard dairy fans Mm -hmm. anyway so well um our time is up I want to thank both Michael Tunick and Peter Kendall, and we loved reading The Science of Cheese uh, for so many, for a resolute non-scientist such as myself, this book taught me a lot, and thank you, Peter, for joining us, and I'll be back next month on Cutting the Curd. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.